Isn't God good? God is so good. I've always wanted to preach right after Tim Green. It's always been a dream of mine. I, uh, I, I say this, and I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be humorous. There's no, nothing to that. I'm, I'm dead serious when I say this. But I told Parker just a minute ago, I said, I said, there's preachers, there's good preachers, there's great preachers. But there are some men that are men of God. Even if you don't know them, if you just get in the presence. And I'm, I'm not mystical or anything. But you just tell there's something different here. That's Brother Tim Green. And uh, I believe he's a holy man. And a man of God. And I know, I know the Greens have great heritage, great, you're like Baptist royalty. And I, and I'm, I say that seriously. I, I mean that. But your heritage is a part of my heritage. Because from the earliest age, I grew up listening to Dr. Green. I had the cassette tape, Holy or the Harder. I bet I listened to it a hundred times. I could preach it right along with him. Right, right along with him. And it was a hero. It was a hero of mine. And, uh, and so growing up, growing up with that heritage and um, uh, blesses my heart, blesses my heart. And I could not imagine, and this is, I'm not making references to anything, it's just in my heart. I could not imagine walking away from my heritage. Um, couldn't imagine abandoning it, walking away, leaving it. I, I could not imagine that. And uh, thank God for it. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. I was in chapter 3 last night. Okay. And uh, so, chapter 4. And uh, I'm not sure that I'm supposed to preach right now. And uh, we'll know in just a minute whether or not this is a mistake. And uh, if it is, I, you pray that I recognize it. And we'll sit down. Uh, but this is what is on my heart. And this is what Brother Gradley has given me this time slot. And so I pray the Lord would use it to speak to our hearts. I, I want to be very, very practical with you this afternoon. And I've preached this in a couple of churches that are represented here. And if you've heard this, then obviously you need to hear it again. And so that's the way that we're going to take it. The Gospel of John chapter 4, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus baptized, made and baptized more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. He must needs go through Samaria. I'll read some other verses as we go along in the text, but I'll stop reading there for right now. I want to preach for just a little bit. On Jesus and the Shady Lady. Jesus and the Shady Lady. I don't know if you believe in providential encounters. That God can so order your steps to make your paths cross with another person for a divine purpose. Chance encounters have no purpose. There's no reason for them other than two people happen to be at the same place at the same time. And that's all there is. But there are divine encounters. That is where God orchestrates events and circumstances in your life to have you at an assigned place at a particular time. And God orders and orchestrates events and circumstances on the other side of town to have somebody else in the same place at the same time. 
There can be a thousand reasons, and you won't always ever know the reason why, but our lives are filled with providential encounters. I believe that. And John chapter 4 records a providential encounter in the life of Christ. You find it in verse number 4. The Bible says he must needs go through Samaria. Well, why? What, what is in Samaria? Now, Samaria would be one of the last places that an Orthodox Jew would go. He would go out of his way to not to go to Samaria. So why the compelling need for Jesus to go to Samaria? And the reason why is because there is a divine encounter that the Heavenly Father has appointed for him. He is they go there to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and it is no chance encounter. Now you know the story of John 4 very well. Jesus sits down at the well at Sychar in the heat of the day to rest, and a woman who is generally cast as an immoral woman comes and meets him there, and Jesus asks her to draw him a drink of water. That begins a conversation about living water. Very soon, the conversation about water becomes a conversation about worship, and not too long, this woman is going back into town telling the men that she has met a man and he must be the Messiah. Now, I know that we have preached, every preacher here has preached from the woman at the well, and there's a number of avenues that we could go down this afternoon. But for just a little bit, I, I, I want to look at Jesus more than I do this woman, and I, I, I want us to consider Jesus as the master soul winner. In chapter 3, he witnesses to Nicodemus. In chapter 4, he witnesses to the woman at the well. And no two people could have been more different than, than these two people, and Jesus did not approach them in the same way. He tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. He tells the woman at the well that you need living water. In truth, Nicodemus needed living water and she needed to be born again, but he knew how to meet people where they were. And he knew how to turn any conversation toward the gospel. And so he takes a simple conversation about water with a woman at a well and he turns it toward living water. A lawyer asks him a question about the greatest commandment and he turns that into a conversation about his covetousness. So if he had approached this woman at the well and started in with the greatest commandment is to love God, that wouldn't have spoken to her. If he'd ignored the lawyer's question and said you need living water, that would not have spoken to him. Jesus is the master soul winner. I'll not preach this part of the text because I'm moving quickly to get to verse number 7 and get on to the story. But if you want to just write it down, you'll notice how that Christ witnesses at an inconvenient period. The Bible says that he is wearied with his journey and he sat thus on the well and it is about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is the Jewish way of saying about 12 o'clock noon when the sun is at its hottest. And, and I think about the physical conditions of Jesus. He's been walking all day long and it's hot. He is thirsty. It's not the best of conditions to start a conversation with a stranger. And you and I have to have the conditions to be just right we allow any distraction, any excuse to rob us of the opportunity. But Jesus is there on a divine mission. He's not there to get a drink from a well. He's there to give her a drink from another well. And there is no bad time to witness. It witnesses at an inconvenient period. He witnesses in an inhospitable place. Verse 4 says he must needs go through Samaria. If you've ever looked at a map of Israel, you know that the quickest way from Judea to Galilee is to go straight through Samaria. But there's a fierce rivalry between the Samaritans and the Jews in other regions. And so a, a, an Orthodox Jew from Galilee or Judea, he wouldn't go through Samaria if he could help that. 
I'll spare you all of the history, but there was, there was bad blood between them and, and the Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds and they were, they were a mixture of, of Gentile and Jew and they had, they had apostatized the religion and had gone off and done their thing. And so when the Bible says that he must needs go through Samaria, that is highly unusual. Jews didn't go through Samaria. They went around it in a show of disdain. You'd never catch a scribe or a Levite in Samaria to preach. You'd never catch a Pharisee. You wouldn't catch him dead in Samaria. And of all the places that Jesus could go, he must needs go through Samaria because there's not only no bad time, there's no bad place to witness. We see in the story how that Christ witnessed to an improbable person. There come with a woman in verse 7 of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Verse 9, Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? You never know who needs what you have. We are so quick to prejudge, aren't we? They either have too much or they have too little. They're either too sophisticated as to need the gospel, or they're too far gone that the gospel can't help them. It's almost as if the moderate class and the moderately moral can get saved. And what we have to do is we have to quit qualifying sinners. Many of us would have never witnessed to Nicodemus because he's got too much religion. We wouldn't have witnessed to the Samaritan because she's got the wrong religion. There's obstacles, there's a gender barrier, there's a racial barrier, there's a moral lifestyle barrier, but Jesus spoke to her. She is an offcast. She has been written off and she is used and thrown out and, and she's in the wrong religion and no respectable man would have anything to do with her. There are too many strikes against her and she's in a corrupt religion and a, and, and a mixed race and horrible marriages and, and Jesus talked to her. And in so doing, he gave you and I an example of how you and I can witness to those that are around us. And that's why I want to take the story for just a minute. And I want to use his example to see if it can help you and I how to witness. We will hear 75 messages this week and 123 songs. And we will get our cup filled. And we will leave on cloud nine rejoicing in the goodness of God and the grace of God. But we must not forget that right outside these walls is a world of Samaritans that's dying and going to hell. And surely we cannot believe that all of this is just for us. It's just for us to keep. No, we've been given a commission to take the gospel into the world. I've got to hurry, I've got to hurry. I want you to notice, first of all, how that Jesus initiates a conversation. Look at verse number 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. So it just begins with a simple request for water. And I think that you would agree with me that Jesus didn't really need her to get him a drink of water. He could have very easily done a miracle. He could have gotten water out of the well by himself, but Jesus never performed a miracle to do something for himself. And so he does have a desire for a drink of water because he's weary with the journey, but his greater desire is to strike a big conversation with this woman about spiritual things. And he knows that there are all of these obstacles to get through, but I'm not going to let those become barriers to me speaking to her. And so though his request is a legitimate request, it is also a conversation starter. 
And I would just stop and say, if I can be practical, that, that, that's, that's a simple first step. I'll be honest with you, it's the hardest first step for me. I told you last night, I am not a conversationalist. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, don't get up and just, just go talk to people. But, but, but in order to give the gospel, you've got to do that. You, you, somebody's got to speak. And, and, and if you go to witnesses, the first conversation is not gonna be, sir, are you saved? You might wanna start with hello, something along those lines. You gotta build up some rapport. And, and that's what he's doing. And, 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 and here's, here's our problem. Either we don't speak up or we're not looking for an opportunity to put the gospel in the conversation. And we've got to get there. We've got to engage. We've, we've got to get out of our comfort zones. And we've got to be friendly. We, we, we've got to be interested in people. The neighborhood that I live in, there's a, there's a large sign at the very entrance and it says no soliciting. It's a huge waste of signboard because everybody solicits in that neighborhood. And for whatever reason, roof salesmen and solar panel salesmen come by all the time. And I can look through the window and I see the knock on the door and I can see the teenage kid or the 20-year-old kid there with his little clipboard. I know he's getting ready to try to sell me solar panels. I go to the door and I open the door. And he does not begin with, sir, would you like to buy solar panels? That's not his sales pitch. No, he has been trained in solar panel sales school to engage, to, to find some common ground. And so he's looking for something. If I have a dog, then all of a sudden he loves dogs. If, if I've got a logo on my shirt and whatever team it is, that, that's what he likes. And he begins, sir, are you having a good day? He could care less whether I'm having a good day. He's trying to break the ice, to break down my defenses is what he's trying to do. It's blabber. It, it's chit-chat. It's a waste of time is what it is. But he's looking for an opening. And, and I, I, I deplore salesman's tactics in witnessing. I'm not going to lie and tell you that I like your cat in order to witness. I'm not going to do that. You do that when you don't care for people. You're just trying to sell them. Jesus is not trying to sell this woman. He genuinely cared for her soul. And if you and I are going to reach people, we're going to have to go to where they are. We're going to have to engage them. And we have to engage them with the goal of getting them to the gospel. May not get there the first time, but that's what I have in mind. Got to look beyond the religion and the cult that they belong to and their tattoos and their piercings and what they look in their life and what they're wearing and show interest in people that you normally are not interested in and show kindness to people that are not expecting it. Ask questions and be interested and listen to the answers. How can I open a door to this person? He's initiating a conversation. But then I want you to notice, secondly, that he invites questions. Look at, look at verse number nine. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now you need to go home sometime and you, you need to study the history of the Samaritans, where they came from and Mount Gary. You, you need to study that on your own and you'll understand that the first thing that this woman brings up is the ages-long conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. That would have been the natural thing to talk about because it's the most obvious. 
But if you'll notice in verse number 10, when Jesus replies to her, he ignores that rivalry. He doesn't even address, he, does, he doesn't even acknowledge it. Jesus answered and said to her, if thou knewest the gift of God, who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he could, would have given thee living water. If he would have answered the rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans, they would have had a conversation hours long about it, and neither one of them would have changed the other's mind. All right, so, so, so I'm not getting drawn into that debate because that's not what I am here about. She would have told him everything that she's ever heard about Jews. He could have refuted that and told her how the Jews are chosen people and they could have debated all day long, but Jesus is not there to debate over something that does not matter. He's too wise to be drawn into a debate or a conversation with something that I'm not going to change her mind about. So he, he ignores the con conflict and he makes a tremendous statement in verse 10. I, I love this. He says, he says, if thou knewest the gift of God, if thou knewest, she, she didn't know who he was. She didn't know what she needed. She didn't know what he could offer. She didn't know how she could receive it. If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that said to thee, give me to drink, I love this, thou wouldest have asked. All that you have to do is ask. Everything that I have to offer you is for the asking. And I love this. He said, thou wouldst have asked and he would have given thee living water. Aren't you glad that nothing God has is for sale? That he's not looking to strike a bargain with you. God is a giver and everything that he offers is free. And if you want to be forgiven of sins, all you have to do is ask. If you want to go to heaven, all you have to do is ask. <laughs> and then Jesus says, he would have given thee living water. Now you understand. And when Jesus says living water, he has taken the conversation from physical to spiritual. And what he's doing is he's identifying her as the thirsty one, and he is the one with the water. And she doesn't know where he's going with this yet, but now she has questions in her mind that she has never entertained before. And Jesus is drawing her in. He's going to make her think about something that she has never thought about before. Look, if you would, in verse number 14. Or she says... It, she, she says in verse number 11, I'm sorry. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? She's already, she's already putting past her the fact that it's unusual for him to be talking to her. She's beginning to engage with him now. And in, in her day, it was common to refer to flowing water like a spring, flowing water as living water. It's moving and it's fresh. And she's still thinking of water from the well and it's good water, but you're claiming to have better water than what we draw from this well. She says, our father Jacob gave us this well. It's been providing water for thousands of years, yet you claim to have living water. And here's what she says. She says, whence then hast thou that living water. She's not rejecting him. She's not arguing. Her, her defenses have been dropped. 
If you do have living water, I don't understand, but I would like to know more. She's asking questions about it. And if you want to be a witness, one of the things that you have to do is you've got to get people to think about them to, for themselves. Most people go to church and they have a little religious and they got a few little cliches, but they've never thought deeply about, about, about spiritual things and they can repeat a few lines and they, they've got an opinion, but they don't have answers because they've never considered the questions. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. Not asking anybody to check your brain in the door. This is deep stuff. This, this is life-changing stuff. This is eternal stuff. And you need to think about this. So he's inviting questions. But then I want you to notice he's instructing in truth. Look at verse 13. Jesus answered said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I should give him shall never thirst, but the water that I should give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to her, Sir, give me this water. But I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now Jesus obviously is talking about salvation. She, she doesn't understand that. And I think the way that she responds, there may be a little sarcasm, maybe a little scorn, maybe a little bit of cynicism here. Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. She's still thinking about, about this well right here. She's still thinking about well water, and she's thinking physical water. It can't make you where you're never thirsty again. You can't drink enough water so that you won't ever need another drink of water again. So he's inviting questions. He's instructing her in truth. And right here, right here, where she says, sir, give me this water that I thirst not, right here is where a modern evangelism would have her bow her head and say a prayer. Or have her in the baptistry within an hour. She just said, give me the water. Huh? But Jesus said, well, there's one thing we have to deal with. This is where we're going to break with easy believism, all right? It was good till we got here. Jesus says in verse number 16, go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. Thou hast had five husbands. He whom thou now hast is not thy husband. So in that saidest thou truly. He's talked about eternal life. And if she has bowed her head and made a profession of faith right here, she would have went away, went away happy and twice the child of hell is what she would have done. Because there's something that hadn't been dealt with, we're going to have to deal with your sin. If all that you do is tell people that salvation is a free gift, everybody will sign up from that. But if you tell them we've got to deal with your sin, oh, let's back up for just a minute. But the holy law of God and the weight of divine judgment must be brought upon her sin. And so Jesus, can, he doesn't lead her in a prayer just yet. He confronts her with her sin. And when you get somebody to just repeat a little prayer without repenting of their sin, I believe there has to be conviction in order for there to be conversion. And we're going to have to deal with the sin. And if we don't deal with the sin, all we're going to deal with is a false profession. Now, 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 here is a woman. Here is a woman who has been married five times. She is now living with a man that she is not married to. Now, I don't have time to get into this this morning. All right, because as I, as I as I read the story, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that she is as immorally wicked as we always preach her to be. I, 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 I'm just not sure. We, we, we preach her as a very, very immoral woman. And there's, there's really two, two can, can I, can I, just real quick, there's two reasons why we say this. Number one is she comes to the well 
at the sixth hour. That's 12 o'clock noon. All the commentators say that's highly unusual. It's the hot part of the day. Nobody comes to the well at that time because it's too hot. So the reason why she came, because she's ashamed of her lifestyle and she comes when nobody else sees her. And so that's one mark against her. And then five husbands and living with the guys and other husbands. Now, 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 here, now here's, here's the deal. So she comes to the well at, at 12 o'clock noon, the sixth hour, and that is a strike against her. I, I just have, have you ever gone someplace that you wouldn't normally be at that time of the day? Have you ever done that? I, I, if, you, if you see me at Walmart at 10 o'clock at night, that is highly unusual. But don't assume I'm there to buy liquor or cigarettes or something. It's just something that happened. And then here's a woman that, that she's been married five, five times and she gets the blame for, for, for the failed marriages. Just remember that in Bible days, he divorced her. She didn't divorce him. He had all of the rights is what he had. And so, so it might be that here's a woman that's in five failed marriages and they might not all be her fault. I, 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 fault. I, I, I'm not sure about that. And, I, and I'm just trying, I'm not excusing her because I know that she did some things, but I am trying to understand her is what I'm trying to do. But here's what I can say, that she's living with a man that she's not married to and that's wrong. That is an adulterous relationship. And Jesus always knew how to get to the one issue that is at the heart of every person. So he confronts her with her sin. And like every sinner, she's not quite ready to admit the whole truth. She says, I have no husband. Well, that's a half truth. But Jesus is not going to let her off the hook. You're correct in that you have no husband. That's technically true. But you have left something out. And he shocks her. When he, read, when he reads her biography back to her, he has never met her, but he knows her life story. And, 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 and there's no place to hide. There's, there's no place, no, no use playing semantics with Christ. He knows what's in your heart. He knows every deed. He knows every thought. He knows every intent. And now what you have is you have a woman is convicted. She has been exposed. Somehow he knows all of my sin. And then she realizes that he knows everything about me. I don't know anything about him. And so, so she says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. A prophet is one who speaks for God. She's basically saying the same thing Nicodemus said in the previous chapter. You must be from God because nobody does these miracles and nobody knows this stuff unless he's been from God. She's not ready for a course in systematic theology yet, but I think the light is starting to come on. She's being convicted of her sin. She's convinced that this stranger, he's not just a stranger. He knew her sin, and there's no way that he can know that unless God told him that. She is fully awakened to her sin. She is fully awakened to the nature of this stranger, and she wants to know more. So she says in verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And it's posed as a statement. I think there's a question behind it. I know what our fathers say. And I know what you Jews say. But where do I go to worship? I know being right with God is a matter of worship. But where? The Samaritans have a mountain temple that's called Mount Gerizim. 
Hundreds of years built earlier than built hundreds of years earlier. That's their holy place, Jerusalem. Uh, uh, the Jews, they have the temple in Jerusalem and the Samaritans have Mount Gerizim and that's their holy temple. But here's the thing about it. She feels convicted in her soul about her sin. She perceives that Jesus is a prophet from God and now she's beginning to question everything she's ever been told about her religion. You know, for a person to be saved, they have to abandon all unacceptable forms of worship. She believes in God and she wants to worship God. She doesn't know where to go. All that she knows is an external religion. Because her religion never did anything inside of her. All she has is rituals and commands. That's all that she has. The weight of her sin is upon her. The emptiness of her religion has her questioning where to worship God. I want to worship God. I want to know God. But where do I go? And I love what Jesus said in verse 21. Woman, believe me. Your eternity depends on whether you get ready to believe what I'm getting ready to tell you. She wants to know where to worship, which temple is the right temple, which religion is the right religion. And Jesus is going to tell her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye should either in this mountain or yet Jerusalem worship the Father. What's he talking about? A.D. 70, Titus, Roman general, he's coming to Jerusalem. He's going to destroy the temple. Not one stone left unturned upon another. But as you know, history says that when he left Jerusalem, he went to Mount Gerizim, climbed the mountain, and he destroyed that temple as well. Within a few years, neither temple would be standing. Woman, believe me, I tell you that there's coming a time you're not going to worship in this temple or that temple and all of your religion is associated to a place. What are you going to do when neither place is standing there? And then to drive the nail home. Now he's, he's, he's talking to a sinner. He's talking to a sinner. Look at verse 22. Ye worship, ye know not what. Your religion is no good. Your worship is not even worship. At least we Jews have the scripture and the savior of the world comes to the Jewish race. And if you have any remaining vestiges of hope in your religion, you better let it go now. Because when I tell you that everything that you are trusting in right now, it is not even valid worship. You must believe me enough to forsake it. You don't even know what you're doing. If both temples are destroyed. What are you going to do? Your, your worship is blended with idolatry and so much deception. It's not even worship. And this woman cannot say, give me living water while I go back onto Mount Gerizim and worship my idols. She cannot say, I'll take what Judaism has to offer and what my Samaritan religion has to offer too. It is one or the other. And Jesus is not being rude to her. He's not trying to offend her. But you've got to know the truth. You have to know that you have religion, but you don't know God. You have to know that your religion is a false religion, and what you are trusting in right now, it is going to send you to hell. He didn't start with that, but he has gotten her to the place where he can tell her what she has to know. He doesn't talk to her about covetousness like he does somebody else. He talks to her about her sin and her deception. The issue in your life is that your faith is on a mountain, Mount Gerizim, and a pagan idolatry, and that temple is a temple of lies. 
And I say to you this afternoon that you and I must not be ashamed of declaring the gospel truth. I know that the gospel is offensive and we're not trying to be offensive, but you cannot sidestep it forever. You can't soft soap it forever. You've got to tell sinners the truth is what you have to do. I think, I think we've got into this thing. You knock on the door and, and, and you introduce yourself and they say, well, I'm Catholic. And here's what we want to say. Oh, oh, that's good. That, 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 that's good. Catholics do a lot of good in the world. Catholic hospital. No, it's not good. Do you understand that? Do you understand that if you stay in the Catholic church and you believe what they believe, that you're going to die and go to hell? That's not a good thing. Oh, well, 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 I, I, I belong to the Mormons. I, I belong to the Jehovah's Witness. I, 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 and we want to compliment them. We want to find some common ground. No, there is no common ground. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be offended. You understand? But no, you can't stay in the Jehovah's Witness. You can't stay in the Mormons. You can't stay there because what you need is you need Jesus is what you need. He's instructing her in truth. He's instructing her in truth. I've got to hurry. He's inspiring hope. Look at verse 25. The woman said unto him, I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Her Bible is the Samaritan Pentateuch, first five books of Moses. That's all that they gave her. That's it. They don't believe the prophets. They, don't, they believe the first five books of Moses. Samaritanism is it's a branch off of Judaism. They, they have a lot of Judaism in its own brand of religion. And she knew. Her church told her that Messiah was coming. Of course, her church would have told her it was a Samaritan, not a Jew. She knew Christ was coming, but she didn't know much about him. And she says when he comes, he would tell us all things. I know there's, not that. I know there's a lot that I don't know. But when Messiah comes, he's going to solve all the mysteries. I don't know. I, I want to know. And when Christ comes, he, he will tell us we're, we're not going to have full truth until he comes. <laughs> and Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And she believes it. You know how I know she believes it? She goes back into the village. Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ, she has not rejected what he told her. And so now Christ reveals himself to her. By the way, I, I just time out real quick. This is the first time in the gospels where Jesus himself claims to be the Christ. John has declared it, but this is the first time that Jesus himself explicitly says that I am the Christ, not to a rabbi, not to a scribe, not to a Pharisee, not to a Sadducee, no, but to an unnamed woman sitting at a well, steeped in her religion, bound in her sin, confused in her heart. She has acknowledged her sinful condition. She has expressed faith in a Messiah that she does not know. I want to know where to worship. And Jesus says, I am he. <laughs> she knew nothing about him at all before the conversation. And now she wants to know everything about him. And she has seen no miracles. And no healings. No signs. No wonders. 
All that she has is his word. And that's enough. Oh, I got to hurry. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Instructing others. Look at verse 28. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just slicing and dicing and skipping through. The woman left her bread water pots, went her way into the city, said to the man, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And they went out of the city, came into him. Look at verse number 39. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. She goes into town. She tells the men to come see a man. Told me all things that ever I did. They come out to the well. They begin to converse with Jesus. They came. They heard. They believed. Jesus ends up staying for two days in that village, and many more believed. In fact, verse number 42, they said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. And know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Do you know who ought to be saying that? The Jews. That, that's who ought to be saying that. The Jews were supposed to be a missionary nation. Salvation is of the Jews, not just for the Jews. But Israel was a nation of Jonah's. Jonah's fine preaching to the Jews, but don't send me to the Gentiles. And here's what you have. You have a village of sinners who are alienated from Israel. They're neither Jew nor Gentile. They're idolaters, false religion, full of immorality on the wrong side of the tracks. And it is this group that becomes the first true missionaries, not the Sanhedrin, not the Pharisee, not the priest, not the Levite, but a village of outcasts, hated Samaritans. The most unlikely people of all who would announce that he is the savior of the world. And you have to remember that these people have as much animosity toward the Jews as the Jews have toward them. And they are saying that a Jew, a Jew, a Jew is the savior of not one of our own, but one from the other side. Not one from our religion, but one from a religion that we have hated for centuries. And we would normally hate this man for even showing up into our town. We hate his nationality. We hate his religion. We hate everything about him. But we believe he is the savior of the world. They, they knew the saying that salvation is of the Jews and they are agreeing with this. This, this is monumental. I, 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 know it's, I know it's Tuesday afternoon, but, but this is big stuff. For them to say that a Jew, that a Jew is the savior of the world, here's what they have to do. In order for a Jew to be the savior of the world, then it is not a Samaritan. They have to renounce themselves. You cannot go back up to that mountain, to that pagan temple, and pretend that you're worshiping. Not now. This is life-changing in every way. An entire village comes to Christ. And you never read where that ever happens in Israel. He goes into his own town of Nazareth, and they want to study. His disciples get so frustrated with the unbelief. We wanted to call fire down and destroy the villages. But a psychar is different. I ask you this afternoon, who are you influencing for the gospel? My friends, it's stories fast as I can. Preach three sermons in one. Christ is the example. And when you study the example of Christ, you learn how to do it. But it is useless information 
if we don't do it. It doesn't take her seminary training and 20 years of studying the Bible to tell somebody about Jesus. She said, just let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. She hasn't even had a course in evangelism yet. She has not even read how to win friends and influence people. She has had no instruction in how to draw the net. I just know what Jesus has done for me. And I cannot wait to tell somebody else. Can I have two minutes? Can I have two minutes? Two minutes, two minutes. Look quickly in verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. He said to them, I have meat to eat, you know not of. Therefore the said disciples one to another, hath any man brought him out to eat? Jesus said unto him, I meet is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Here's what I believe. I believe if you and I are ever going to be effective witnesses for Christ, we're going to have to be willing to sacrifice something. Somewhere the souls of men have to become a higher priority than the temporal things that we are consumed with. The disciples are concerned about dinner. Their mind is on physical needs. Jesus has his heart on spiritual food. When is the last time you and I got excited about spiritual things? We didn't even want to stop for lunch. We feed our flesh. Nothing wrong with that. Jesus said, my soul is fed from doing the will of the Father. I think about missionaries going to the foreign land. And the sacrifices that they make. Sacrificing a physical comfort to meet somebody else's spiritual need. And if Jesus had been more concerned with his own need than somebody else's, he had never had this story. If his desire for comfort had been greater than his desire for the will of God, this woman would have never gotten saved. Oh, if his desire for comfort have been greater than his desire for the will of God, you and I would have never gotten saved. If Christ did not have meat to eat, which we know not of, he'd have never gone to the cross and died for you and me. And if you and I are not willing to make some sacrifice for the will of God, somebody will not hear the gospel. I wonder if there's somebody here that identifies with the woman at the well the most unlikely candidate for salvation in the world. She is the last person who should have gotten saved. And somehow we look at ourselves at Jubilee and we imagine that we were always like this. And we forget. We weren't always saints. But Jesus came. He sat down beside the well with you. And when you weren't looking for Jesus, Jesus was looking for you. You came for water, you left with the well. You came with a thirsty soul, found in him everlasting water. You've never been thirsty for what the world offers ever since. But here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take what we have found, go into town, find other Samaritans, and tell them about a man named Jesus. And truth be told, there's probably not a single person in this room that as strong as a witness as they ought to be, starting with me. We don't speak up. We hardly ever pass out tracts. We don't try to put Jesus in the conversation. We do prejudge people. We're like the Pharisee. We don't really care. 
too busy building a life, too busy with the bothers of life. And the Samaritan sits down and we never say a word. When you are at an inconvenient period of your life, look around. It may be a providential encounter. When you find yourself in a less than desirable place, it might be a divine appointment. And when you cross paths with that stranger, ask yourself, why are you here? And I'm here. I wonder if the Father has put us together that I might tell you about Jesus. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts this afternoon. Must I take the grace and the mercy and the gospel and the truth and must I harbor it for myself? Must I rejoice that I am saved and care not that anybody else is? So help us this afternoon to get out of our comfort zone, to get over ourselves. To quit qualified the sinner. Quit prejudging. See, there's a mission field. Help us to follow the example that you have given us and how to take Christ 